Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Markets have stabilized somewhat as investors grapple with whether the upcoming recession will be as mild as growing consensus suggests. Russia's war against Ukraine grinds on with Moscow making incremental grains and destroying vast Ukrainian grain stores to exacerbate a global food crisis that its war has caused. As Vladimir Putin threatens all those who help Kiev, prompting Western nations to temper their support. That said, the EU imposed new Russia sanctions and will end 90% of Russian oil and nearly 70% of gas imports by year's end. China is easing lockdowns as air travel demand remains big despite rising airfares. Meanwhile, with the Farnborough International Air Show just six weeks away, Boeing has decided against developing a new airliner for at least another two years. This as the United States Air Force announces that its next generation air dominance system has entered engineering and manufacturing development, suggesting the top priority and top secret program is moving at a blistering pace. And as COVID cases in the United States and elsewhere increase, At least 1 million Americans have died over the course of the pandemic. At least 6.3 million lives worldwide have been lost. Joining us today, as they do every week, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, Vago, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Happy weekend, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, Indeed, it wouldn't be Sunday unless we were all convening. Thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. And the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Ron, as you do every week, start us off. Uh, how did the group perform? What were the, the drivers? Uh, and you, have, uh, you and the Bank of America team uh, have done some very interesting macroeconomic uh, research. Sort of give us a little bit of a flavor on that as the market increasingly uh, starts to debate. How, okay, we know there's a recession coming. How bad is this recession going to be? Yeah, so let's kind of, you know, the, the recap of the, the, the stuff we go through. Typically, the S&P was down a little over a percent on the week. Um, the, the big champ in our world actually was Boeing this week. It was up about a little over 5%. Uh, to give you a feel for some of the other big bellwether stocks, Northrop was up uh, about a percent and a half. General Dynamics was up about a percent and a half. Raytheon was flat. Uh, if you look at energy prices, uh, WTI uh, crude is a, is a nice thing to look at. It's uh, just a smidge under 120. Uh, energy prices you know, continue, continue to climb. Uh, and then if you look at the, the 10-year yield, the 10-year yield uh, went up. Uh, we're just a smidge under 3%, 2.95% uh, on the 10-year. And the VIX index, uh, since we ended the week uh, on, a, on a little bit of a better note, uh, the VIX was 25. And it's been trending between you know, 25 and 35. And the VIX is... You know, the, the index that measures sort of volatility in the market, sort of the risk, the risk index, uh, you know, that, 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 that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, and, and I just want to remind everybody, it was a short trading week, right? Monday, uh, the market wasn't open and, 
Um, not everybody was in the office Tuesday and a lot of people were out of the office the whole week. So I think you get a better flavor for kind of actual market sentiment this upcoming week when kind of everybody's back and, and, and things are up and moving. Um, yeah, there are just some, you know, just some, you know, just interesting little observations. Um, our, uh, our strategy team does, you know, some interesting economic work, um, you know, and they, and they point out, you know, we're coming off a, a bottom in, in interest rates. That's, uh, the lowest in, in 5,000 years. Uh, and, and if you think about, you know, interest rate yields, um, you know, interest rates, if you go back to about 300 AD um, on average, uh, they're you know, somewhere between kind of four and a half and 5%. So when you think about, you know, yields going up, they could you know, go up higher and history kind of suggests that. Um, and if you go back to that period, uh, you know, that stagflation period, interest rates actually got, got, got pretty high. And what's kind of interesting, when you think about broadly how things trade in a uh, stagflation environment, you know, there's you know, certain portfolios of things uh, that, that you want to own. Uh, and uh, in, in, when you, when in, in that kind of environment, typically what will happen is um, if you go back to 1973 and 1974, oil traded really well, uh, as did the entire uh, com- commodity complex. That's kind of what we're, what we're seeing now. And then the things that really got hit were, you know, growth names, technology, staples, utilities, that kind of stuff. So if you're seeing how the market's playing out today, it, it's kind of repeating a little bit. It's vaguely reminiscent of what happened um, uh, back uh, when we were kind of in another stagflation environment. Uh, and I'm, I'm clearly not saying that stagflation is going to happen, but it seems like the market is trading in a way that it's starting to price, price that in. Uh, and so what is, you know, you know, what's that you have inflation with uh, lower growth or maybe even um, no growth. So, so, so we'll see how it all plays out. Um, uh, so I think that's where we are. I, I think that Ron, that 5,000 year figure is, is really quite uh, stunning uh, and, and probably is good for a dissertation uh, somewhere along the way for uh, an enterprising uh, economics uh, student. Just real quickly about Boeing. I mean, was, was that price rise also driven in part because the company is, and I know we're going to discuss this a lot more in, in a moment, but just from a, a, a stock valuation standpoint, is this because management basically said, hey, we're not going to develop a new airplane over the next two years. And folks thought, okay, they'll just have more disposable income now no no I don't, I don't think it was that i think what, what drove it um it was on a day where two things happened uh after the market closed on the previous day there was an airworthiness directive that came out of the faa that talked about inspections on 787s uh, and that was inspections on 787s that were in service uh and and the market interpreted that as a step forward in actually 787s being delivered out of uh, out of uh, the facility uh, down in South Carolina. Um, that, in fact, isn't true. The two are kind of not connected. Uh, so that's one thing. And Delta also said that they're you know, pretty close to a deal on uh, buying 737s. And, and Delta's, I think, focused on the 737 MAX 10. Uh, you know, doing a deal with Delta for an OEM is always sort of a mixed blessing because Delta is an extremely frugal buyer of airplanes. Um, you know, right. Selling airplanes is, is always good, but the Delta guys, historically, you know, it's a team that has a legacy back through Northwest, and they really know how to buy airplanes. And generally, Delta gets a good deal when they when they when they buy planes. And then the other point I might add, uh, which is interesting, and, and probably we can talk about this as a group, is the complications on the Max Ten around certification and and what that all means. It, it looks like 
you know, like the Max 10 doesn't even have a, a, a TIA yet. And the TIA is the docket of things that you kind of have to do. It's the menu of things you have to do to actually certify the plane. Um, so it's, it's gotten pretty complicated and it's tied up into uh, law around the FAA. And it, it's, it's actually gotten pretty complicated. Uh, and and we'll uh, get into all of that uh, in just a moment, because this does uh, beg uh, discussion, especially given our group has been uh, calling for the company to to actually develop a new airplane for for many, many years. We're not new to this parade. Uh, Sash, give us a sense on how uh, European and other stocks that you've been looking at, no matter where they are and how they performed and, and what the underlying drivers are and, and how the group in Europe performed uh, as a whole. Yeah, okay. I mean, actually, I'd just start off by picking up, um, you know, Ron's point about Boeing. I mean, the, the way we look at it increasingly is that Boeing is a special situation. Boeing isn't actually trading as a civil aircraft company at the moment. The vast majority of the value of Boeing is is in the defense business. And, you know, there's a bit of a question, actually, as to how you value a civil aviation business that probably will be around in 10 years, may not, may not, probably won't be under current management intentions, be around in 20 years and has very, very high, but poorly calculated uh, cash requirements in terms of you know, new aircraft development and so forth. And all of that means that you know, Boeing trades much more with, with the special situations. It's, it's much less in lockstep with you know, companies like Airbus in particular. And you know, this week was a remarkable week. I mean, Boeing up you know, nearly 6%, Airbus down 3%. Um, Airbus in Europe, Airbus, MTU, Safran, Thales, all um, down about the same three to four percent, um, and special situations Boeing and Boeing at Rolls Royce were, were both up. So we're, we're we're starting to see, I we think some you know investors being uh, treating these as actually two separate groups of companies, not just saying oh they're all civil stocks and then all go up and down depending on your your appetite appetite for risk. Elsewhere in Europe, I mean the you know the real standout I think this week was that it was the um, it was the European defence mid-caps that outperformed uh, this week. Rheinmetall, Hensoldt, Babcock, Leonardo, BA Systems, uh, Dassault, Saab, uh, all of them were up somewhere between 3 and, in the case of Rheinmetall, 7%. I mean, you know, Babcock actually has had a, um, a fantastic three months now. It's up 12%. So, you know, we're, we're seeing the mid-caps, which outperformed strongly on the invasion of Ukraine. Then there was a ton of profit-taking, and they're now back up again, you know, if not at their highs, you know, towards their uh, their highs again, and uh, this was really um, this was really their week. Richard, uh, your your sense on sort of the the interesting uh, commercial. We're going to get to the NGAD. Uh, obviously, I mean that was the big defense news of the week, and we're, we'll talk uh, in a moment about about the Boeing news. But from your standpoint, you know China coming out of lockdown even more. Um, you know, folks are still buying. Uh, tickets, uh, even though airfare prices uh, are going up. We talked about that a little bit last week about how um, economic, um, you know, economic problems may shape that. And at what point the market stops buying, stops uh, traveling. What are some of the trend figures you're seeing over the course of the week and other sort of interesting commercial news, you know, short of, uh, of, of Boeing and NGAP? You know, right now, it's still really a story of capacity constraints and a very strong comeback. Uh, the one glaring red exception, of course, being China. That's a major area of concern still, both in terms of short term uh, and long term. You know, uh, the only thing you can say for China is that, well, a couple of things. 
things in April, early April, the height of the lockdown, were getting really grim. I think they were something like uh, you know eighty percent off peak in twenty nineteen or something or or more. Uh, they've rebounded slightly. I think it's now like seventy percent off peak. So May has not been bad. Uh, so the numbers we. Um, more marginally good news, uh, the government has made a decision to subsidize carriers to keep capacity in for the next few months uh, at 35 percent of 2019, which means they'll at least be prepared when people start coming back in greater numbers and it won't be quite as grim. Um, it's also pretty clear that, you know, fears of widespread carnage aren't happening. The lockdown may or may not have worked. It may or may not have been a good idea, but at least we're not going to see the kind of, you know, desperately awful numbers that some people had feared. Uh, and then on, on top of that, more, again, marginally good news, you know, you've got this feeling, I think you had this feeling, this fear that it was less about locking down for uh, epidemiological reasons and more about social control even some people theorizing that this was preparation for a future world where consumption was really discouraged and autarky was encouraged. Like, you know, basically if China decided to do something like attack Taiwan, the way Russia attacked Ukraine, they'd be prepared in a kind of austere economic environment. Let's prepare for that. There were people who theorized this and not without reason. Um, thankfully they appear to be not, going down that path. People were, you know, encouraged to fly when they can, when the lockdown is over, if not encouraged, then at least not prevented. So this is all good news. Uh, long term, though, this whole thing does not make them look good at all. It does not encourage the kind of, well, market economy that we've been seeing developing in China, but this is part of something we've all been seeing for some time, that China is fundamentally changing under under President Xi's rule. Um, and then on top of that, you've got this issue uh, with, if you look at the figures on people seeking to emigrate or looking to emigrate, they're through the roof. Everyone seems suddenly intrigued by the idea of leaving China. Uh, that to me, of course, speaks to a brain drain of macro long-term societal concerns. But from a travel perspective, at least there are vague signs of green shoots after a fairly terrifying drop into nothingness. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, eloquently, uh, eloquently put. Um, uh, barring any further uh, comments uh, on that, Ron, why don't you start us off about the big news uh, on Boeing's decision, uh, whether it makes sense uh, or doesn't, you could see investors looking at it either as you know a warning uh, that the company is not investing in their future, or hey, um, you know uh, more more money that I'm going to end up uh, getting, uh, and arguably more resources the company may have to may, may have to invest uh, either in in winning new work or at least uh, catching up on uh, all the other expenses it's got. You know, sort of walk us through. Uh, the wisdom of this decision at a time when uh, even their, uh, the company's top customers have suggested not just questions about management uh, and how this plays into that uh, storyline, uh, but also the need for a, a new airplane. Kind of walk us through the, the announcement, what it means, and, and how to make sense of it. Yeah, so um, um, you know, Dave Calhoun, CEO, was, was speaking at an investor conference um, and you know, mentioned a lot of things, but one of the things that he mentioned that kind of jumped out was uh, that Boeing wouldn't be doing a new airplane for, you know, quote unquote, at least two years. So, you know, maybe even longer. 
Um, you know, so on the one hand, uh, the, uh, the issue that you know we've talked about a lot on, on the podcast is, um, well, that probably locks them into less than 40% market share in the narrow body market. Um, you know, I can you know, let Richard talk about that, but my guess is, I don't know, like 35%, some, something like that. Uh, largely because they just they, they won't have an aircraft to counter completely the A321 uh, family of airplanes. Uh, you know the, the Max the Max nine or ten um, for some missions is just fine, right? You know there's Delta. You know you're considering probably going to buy it, um, but for kind of shorter shorter missions. Um, but you know the the A321 family has done very very well you know, compared to the seven three. So it probably locks them in in the narrow body market as sort of the you know the the, the second shareholder, uh, of, you know second holder of share in the market. Uh, you know we call it thirty five percent plus or minus a little. Um, right, that is that is what it is, right? Um, you know broadly that's probably not a good thing because your competitor will have you know incremental volume coming off their line uh, at uh, a cost advantage. Uh, now that being said, like you mentioned, Dago on the flip. Um, that does arguably free capital for other uses. One of the uses could be to pay down debt, which they need to do, right? Because they've got 45 billion in net debt, if I remember right. Um, another thing is they could return it to shareholders, but I would imagine they're going to have to pay down debt before they start returning cash to shareholders. Uh, and then three, deploying it onto all the multitude of programs that they have to fix, right? So the triple seven X has got to be fixed. You know, the 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 seven three seven ten has got to get certified. There's a whole bunch of things of defense that have to be fixed. So there's no shortage of, of places where Boeing could deploy resources, you know, people and money uh, to, to start fixing things across the portfolio. Um, so it, it it kind of it kind of is what it is. I mean, it, it, it's not optimal, uh, and you know, ultimately, it it you know, at least in commercial markets, um, you know, is a is a good thing for for Airbus. Sash, um, how did you interpret uh, that news? And uh, not really unexpected, is it? It's only not it's not unexpected because we have such low expectations now for what Boeing and Boeing management will do and for their ability to do the right thing. Uh, The fact that it's not unexpected does not make it remotely right. I mean, Ron and Richard, you know, rightly uh, commented in the past, doing nothing commits you to a, a really trailing number two position. Um, so let, you know, let's assume Boeing launches something in two years' time. In, in between now and then, Airbus will deliver um, a, somewhere between 13 and 1,500 more narrow-body aircraft. Um, that will get them down the learning curve, particularly on the A220. They'll probably, by then, have, been, have started looking at launching the A220-500, which will take them fair and square into uh, 737 MAX, uh, MAX 8 territory, actually. Um, they will probably have sold, I would say, a minimum of another 500 uh, A320neos. Um, so, you know, their backlog will be not dissimilar to where it is today. And they, sh- they will be looking for cost advantages from their suppliers, you know, probably 10% per unit better than those suppliers prepared to give to uh, Airbus. So two years just makes things worse. It doesn't make, I mean, it, it it doesn't make things better for Boeing commercially. Uh, and I think to argue that they um, that Boeing needs time because the digital tools are not available yet, you know, the comment I'd make to Mr. Calhoun, but also all of his shareholders is, the, a major reason why the tools are not available yet is that Boeing hasn't spent enough money. Airbus has been spending between four and 600 million euros a year on digital tooling, on uh, factory of the future. Um, 
And they've been doing that now for, for about the last four years and they'll be, they'll be ramping up that spend. So yeah, you always want a bit more time to, to get the digital um, set up right and perfect, but they should have been spending on that some time ago, not doing this crazy process of, um, uh, of share buybacks and, uh, and then facing a crisis for which they had far too leveraged a, a, a balance sheet. You know, Airbus will be delighted by this. This is a recipe for, you know, near monopoly pricing uh, for the A321. Um, and uh, it's very, very hard to overcome a situation like that uh, by waiting, in our humble opinion. Richard, um, your, your sense and, and take on it all? Just very strong agreement with uh, Ron and, and Sash. Look, clearly current leadership does not want Boeing to be a serious commercial jetliner prime in the long haul. Uh, <laughs> they just don't. I don't understand anything about Boeing's top management right now. I just don't. And this whole thing is just bizarro. The, the denial that there's a need. Also, at the same time, you know, the MAX 10 is a really good jet, but oh, oh well, well, up in the corner. Uh, is there going to be a MAX 10? Because, of course, you know, we really haven't gotten anywhere near resolution on the whole max 10 certification by end of the year issue will there be a waiver probably not will they achieve certification by then probably not will the market and the company have the patience to wait another couple of years while they redo max 10 with icast and break cockpit commonality with the rest of the i i don't know again you know a little leadership would go a long way here i it's, so it's entirely possible that between 180 and 240 seats, which is the hottest part of the market, that Boeing has nothing. It's quite conceivable. And by the way, since they're still not delivering any 787s, um, <laughs> maybe go up to the 777 part of the market too. This is just a bizarre situation. And you know, it's important to remember, per Sasha's comments, the Airbus is also still spending on engineering. What are they spending it on? Well, in addition to digitization, there's something up their sleeve that will allow them to further submit their position in this very strong growth market. I don't know what it is. It might have that long-awaited re-winging of the 321. It might not happen until 2030, whatever. They have a plan. They've got the engineering teams intact, unlike Boeing, which, of course, has a real problem with attracting talent. They're making the investments at Airbus. You know, it's heading to 70-30. Will it be 80-20? Who knows at this point, because there's not a lot of fight back here. And per Sash's comments, again, it's if undercurrent management continues, this all continues, then Boeing will simply out of, be out of the business in, in, in 20 years, except for one or two you know, products. I mean, they'll have 777X and 787. They'll have a wide body niche presence and nothing on the single aisle front. And it's not really, it's not really definite that they'll have the design teams intact necessary to create it a new jet um no way of knowing really and given the trends probably not after another couple of years ron is that as uh, is your prognosis as dire um as as richards um or is this two-year delay allow the company to do research pass through this period of um you know, economic uncertainty, uh, give them the resources to be able to focus on the wolves that are closest to the door. Um, you know, is, is, is two years unrecoverable? And, and, and Sash, want to get your sense on that uh, as well. I mean, even though I think going back six years uh, uh, ago, um, 
when we started this program, um, Sash was the one saying that nobody has ever come back from 65-35, and now Richard's talking about 70-30. Uh, Go ahead, Ron. It's not just two years, right? I mean, that's that's the reality. Um, if you look at the, the situation that was created by uh, the MAX being grounded, uh, and then you add on the complications uh, of COVID on top of that, um, and then the issues they've had on other programs, you know, seven, eight, and, and on triple seven, it, it's, it's not just two years. Right? It's been been a long time. Uh, and, and um, you know, the whole time that Boeing has been deploying resources to fix things, their competitor, they've had things to fix too, but of a smaller magnitude, and they've been able to focus resources on, uh, on the future, uh, on new products, on strategy, uh, you name it. Uh, it's it's a difficult situation, honestly, for Boeing because they're kind of painted into a corner. Um, if they do launch something now, one could argue maybe that's what Airbus wants them to do because then Airbus could put something on top of that product. Um, you're you're not going to see massive changes in engine technology anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I think there was this whole narrative that we'd be flying on hydrogen propelled airplanes mid 2030s. Um, you can mark my words, that's not going to happen. So you're talking about incremental changes in engine technology. Um, so you know what what is the thing to do? Uh, and sadly, uh, and I'd be interested to hear what you know Richard or, or Sash have to think. In, in it, it might be a little too late. I mean, it's never say never, but um, Airbus does have a substantial lead. And if you think about Boeing launching an airplane in two years, uh, and then another five to six years to get it into the market, that puts you to about 2030. And think about all the aircraft that Airbus is going to sell in the meantime in the narrow body segment of the market. Uh, in the wide body segment of the market, it's a little bit different story, right? I mean, the 787, uh, even for you know the issues that it's run into um, in terms of fabrication and, and, and that sort of thing, is a wildly popular airplane. So, you know, it's um, by all accounts a fantastic airplane. Uh, the 777, broadly, uh, was, uh, is, a, is a, a very appreciated airplane. Um, if the market for large aircraft ever comes back, and I think it will at some point, if they get the triple seven X done and it's you know it's engineered reasonably well, it'll probably be um, uh, a popular airplane too. So I mean I think the jury's still out in the wide body market, uh, and I might even say the advantage is to Boeing uh, potentially in the wide body market, but in the narrow body market they're in they're in quite a pickle. Um, I mean, and and I don't think there's any way any way around that. Um, it, it's been a long time. And they're, just to reiterate, and their competitor has been able to, I mean, they're not just sitting on their hands. I mean, Airbus has been you know, clever about, you know, running their business and their product strategy and thinking about the future. Uh, Sash? If Boeing needs an extra two years to develop its entire digital, set, uh, digital setup and tools and so forth, and if he thinks it's going to get a better aircraft as a consequence of a a, a two-year wait before it launches. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're, we're taking the two years as a, as a hard number, and I mean, clearly, it's a lot of trading around that. But what I would want to see, and I think what investors should want to see in that time, is an accelerating uh, spend on core R&D. You know, I think it's very, very important that companies that are in this position actually de just demonstrate that... Uh, they are doing the underlying spending and that that underlying spending is going to be what supports whatever they launch um, over the next uh, you know, coming years or so. I mean, you know, just to give an example, 
Airbus's um, R&D uh, troughed um, uh, in, the, uh, in the last years at a, um, at a group level at about uh, 2.7 billion at a Airbus uh, commercial aircraft at about 2.25 billion last year. Um, we've got it going up 10%, 10%, 13%, 15%, 20%. So it's going to be going up from 2.2 to 3 billion over the next, uh, over the next five years just for commercial aircraft. There's spending for defense and helicopters beyond that. And that is without any apparent aircraft it really needs to launch. I mean, it's spending a few hundred millions a year on the 321 XLR. It's spending um, probably mid hundreds of millions on the A350 freighter. But there's well over a, a billion a year of effectively enabling engineering and digital spending going on there. Airbus clearly thinks it's got to raise R&D from here. So if, if Boeing thinks that two years is, going to, is the pause they need before everything gets ready, we should be seeing them spending now, even if they don't have a program number to put to that, um, so that as and when they do launch, everything is in, is in good shape. Um, are we seeing that? Richard, any, any last thought on this before uh, we go to NGAD? Yeah, I agree with Sash. We need to see some kind, some kind of leadership here at Boeing. You know, is two years absolutely fatal? No, of course not. Um, if they show the right kind of leadership that says, look, we're going to take our time, we're going to increase R&D, which had fallen precipitously over the past few years, and to their credit, the first quarter did show a slight uptick, uh, and start to special, you know, start to create the kind of digital tools and whatever that they've been underfunding. And, and also, most importantly at all, just get out there and talk more with people in the industry, airlines and whoever, and say, look, this is what we're thinking. It's going to be an absolute category killer. The way the 777 and 787 were category killers, we can do this. Until we see that those kind of investments and that kind of discussion, then yeah, the two years might as well be forever and a day. It just doesn't mean anything at all. But if it's two years accompanied by that kind of industry engagement and investment, okay, can wait. Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, uh, engineering and manufacturing development is a key milestone uh, on a program. Uh, obviously, the next generation air dominance uh, program uh, began in the United States Air Force some years ago. Um, senior leaders have been talking about it for some time. You know, we, we do know that when Frank Kendall was Undersecretary of Defense uh, for Acquisition Logistics and uh, Acquisition Technology and Logistics, um, you know, launched a, uh, an, an important effort uh, with DARPA um, to, uh, you know, advance as much of this technology as possible. And he is now the Secretary of the United States Air Force, um, and the program is moving ahead. And, and we will say there was uh, a lot of focus on the program uh, when it was, uh, when uh, Will Roper was Air Force Acquisition Executive, and he, and he spoke often uh, about the speed at which things uh, were moving on this program. Talk to us about what we know, uh, what the financials tell us about who it is or is not, um, and from your knowledge of airplane uh, programs, uh, you know, what, what is it that we can garner from this, right? I mean, we've seen pictures and, and such of models being moved around from wind tunnels. And I know that everybody is uh, trying to cover what is effectively one of the most highly classified programs uh, in the U.S. military. Yeah. So um, I guess the first comment um, on it being an EMD, um, he mentioned that at a, at a presentation this past week, right? That that would be remarkably fast. You know, in, in conversations we've had here among among ourselves on the podcast, um, that going from you know uh, having you know some sort of prototype or whatever whatever it was to now being an EMD, 
uh, would be extraordinarily quick, right? And that would imply, um, you know, some sort of, you know, design process that's either been in the background a lot longer than we all have known or thought, or a design process that's just gone, gone a lot quicker. Uh, in terms of who's doing it, um, there isn't any obvious answer from anybody's financials, right? So if you look at, you know, the, the obvious potential candidates, you know, who could do uh, a new um, uh, fixed wing, pres presuming it's a fixed wing, fixed wing system um, of this nature. I mean, you know, the obvious folks would be a Lockheed or Northrop, potentially a Boeing. Um, and it's not clear from anybody's financials that it's any one of them uh, or some teaming of them. Um, so, so, so we just don't know uh, uh, from, from, from a financial perspective. I mean, we can probably um, you know, make some guesses given you know, co different companies' legacy in developing these kind of systems. Um, so it's probably anybody's guess. You know, it's probably a reasonable guess that it could be Lockheed or it could be Northrop. Um, it definitely hasn't shown up in Boeing's numbers in any way or form. Um, um, but I know there was some speculation that it could even be Boeing. Um, and and that, that, that's kind of where we are. I mean, you know, if indeed it's in EMD and we're moving right along, you know, good for the team that's working on it because that's just remarkably quick. Uh, and the timing is probably pretty darn good given what's going on in the, in the global threat environment. I mean, there, there was a sense that uh, Boeing may have been doing the DARPA uh, you know, demonstrator aircraft, uh, but the, the sense was that you know, Lockheed may be uh, the company that may be uh, involved in that. But again, uh, right, Northrop has an enormous amount of capability in that field, uh, as well as as does Boeing. I mean, uh, let, let's be frank, right? I mean, the, the guys at Phantom Works are no slouches uh, either. So you have three very, very good companies. And indeed, you could see a national team approach being brought to this uh, as, as well if you want to get it moving really quickly and, and have people um, not uh, f fight, fighting it out. Um, Richard, uh, let's go to you, and then and then Sash want to get uh, your your sense on this as uh, as well, and also get uh, your sense, your kind of update on where the Europeans are, right where Tempest is, where uh, SCAF is. But Richard, kind of take it away from from what we know, what you know, uh, and what this tells us, right? Because we know um, the uh, you know Obama administration was pushing to accelerate programs. Uh, the Trump administration pushed to accelerate programs as as much as uh, possible, and we did see some progress on that front. Uh, and we know that Frank Kendall, uh, you know, came to the job uh, pedal pedal to the metal, saying, you know, we we've got to do more and faster, um, and and has been pushing the process along as well. I mean, what 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 can you tell us, and what insight, uh, you know, are you gleaning from from all of these uh, little tidbits? Uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and certainly I think it speaks very well to, uh, uh, to Frank Kendall. I mean, it, it's, it, it, you know, if this all works out, that'll be a remarkable achievement um, under largely under his, or heavily under his watch, but of course, continuing on hard work done by others. You know, a couple of things, obviously EMD phase that implies something that is not a prototype that implies something that is missionized. And well, I think Boeing could find an interesting prototype as you say, they're no slouch. Um, if it's fully missionized, yeah, it's probably going to be Lockheed Martin, maybe Northrop Grumman. That brings us to the next issue about being missionized. Of course, it implies a whole bunch of interesting uh, downselects in terms of uh, major subsystems, be it electronic warfare, radar, and of course, engines. And that could be a major needle mover in, you know, up and down the supply chain. That to me is fascinating when obviously it's all still in the black, but hopefully we'll find out some details that even before we see some kind of physical rollout, just like with the B-21, we, we learned who the major contractors were, of course, years ago. Um, 
big question. What is this thing? Uh, you know, this is a, a point uh, that J.J. Gertler has made. Uh, you know, a, he, he's exactly right. They're talking about air dominance. Does that necessarily mean a multi-role traditional maneuvering combat aircraft? Probably, because, of course, you know, that that culture of wanting a maneuvering multi-role combat aircraft is hard to break and perhaps many desirable given an assessment of alternatives. But there is the possibility that this is something that is truly an air dominance vehicle, given the price tag that Kendall has mentioned, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. We can't rule out some kind of scaled down B-21 with a missile firing capability that simply is designed to take out everything in its path from a distance. Um, unlikely, but you can't rule it out. And that to me also would speak back to the, the question of who the contractor is. Again, probably Lockheed Martin, but who's to say it's not a scaled down B-21 type of vehicle, in which case you can't rule out Northrop Grumman. But again, it's probably a multi-role maneuvering high-speed combat aircraft, Lockheed Martin, that would seem to make the most sense. Something coming out of Skunk Works, far and away the most capable combat aircraft uh, you know, creator in the world. Um, this is just utterly fascinating. The implications are enormous. And I expect the next question will be, of course, when we start to see procurement funds, probably later in the decade, you know, 27, 28, something like that. Can you rule out in-service by 3031? No, it, it seems given the strategic drivers, absolutely possible. How many will they actually get to buy if it does indeed have a unit recurring flyaway of hundreds of millions of dollars? Well, that's another story. It certainly argues for more of an F-22 outcome than it does an F-35 outcome, that's for sure. But I guess we'll see all of that. The sense that you get from the Hill as well is this is the time for us to be making these investments. And so I don't know if you're going to find a lot of people who are blanching at the cost of some of these things. Um, I think you're going to find an appetite to spend what's necessary as long as it's being spent smartly and well. Um, obviously, there's been a risk reduction strategy associated with this over the past you know, uh, half dozen years. Uh, or and or more more than a half dozen years. Remember, I mean, the NGAD talk began in around 2014, right? About what a next generation uh, air combat airplane uh, would look like, um, and and there has been quite a lot of you know. And I, I think that's a great point, um, Richard. Right? I mean, JJ, I think was on the mark. Obviously, uh, he's at your um, affiliated with your former. Uh, organization, Teal Group, but Correct. also was uh, the, <laughs> at CRS uh, for many years. And he was saying, hey, guys, you know, don't think you maybe thinking about this as another fighter might not be the right way to be thinking about this, right? Especially if it's a rangier, bigger platform that manages uh, other systems from it. Uh, although I think that the United States Air Force will want something in that F-22 uh, or bigger interceptor, long range, high speed, uh, to be to be able to control the battle space, but again, maybe be able to do it at a at a at a little bit of a standoff capability, you know, sort of uh, being there without being there. Uh, some of these concepts, uh, Sash, uh, are things that the uh, Royal Air Force has been thinking about for some time as well, right? I mean, what does that future uh, air battle look like? Obviously, Tempest is being tailored for that. The French are working on the through the SCAF program to try to achieve that. You know, give, give us kind of a quick update on where these other programs are and how how folks over there are, are greeting this news, because when the United States has a tendency of putting the pedal down, it has a tendency of 
putting the pedal down and and sort of moving at a at a pace um, that right only eight hundred billion dollars a year spent on defense can help achieve. I think that there would be a much greater sense of dismay if uh, suddenly industrially if there was any potential for NGAD to be exported. The thing that one of the things that has consistently surprised me is that there has been no talk um, about NGAD, you know, welcoming international partners, uh, certainly that I'm aware of so far. Um, and it's a bit of a given that if you're going to buy an aircraft nowadays, you know, if you are a more or less top tier air force and you're going to buy an aircraft, you are going to want at least some form of industrial participation. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, whether that's the UK, Japan, Israel, you know, they're, they're all going to want some sort of skin in the game for this. And that doesn't seem to have been remotely offered so far. That may well change, but it's quite, once you go into it, to EMD, that's very, very late to bring uh, other partners on. So that's, you know, it's going to be, a, you know, the, the program looks industrially and hence in terms of its impact on exports, much more, much more like the F-22 which did not move the needle, than it does the F-15 or the F-35, both of which were, uh, you know, category killers in, uh, in, in the fighter market for their, um, for their generations. Now, where are, you know, where are we with the two European uh, programs? I have to say, anyway, it's rather sad, but, you know, these two programs have both been hit by the pandemic, or at least the pandemic is the excuse for it. Uh, I think things probably have been rather slower for Tempest, although... The work on bringing industrial partners in, and we've talked about the uh, approaches that uh, the UK has made to Japan uh, in previous uh, podcasts, you know, the work bringing industrial partners in has been proceeding, but there's still not a great deal of, uh, we say metal being cut, we really mean plastic being formed and metal being um, sprayed, uh, I suppose, uh, to, to show for it. And for an aircraft which, where there should be a prototype flying in 2025 and um, or demonstrator rather, flying in 2025 and prototypes in the second half of the decade, Tempest needs to speed up quite a lot. Same goes for SCAF. I mean, SCAF, the good news for SCAF is that the German uh, supplementary defence budget, the 100 billion euros, includes a ton of cash for uh, the SCAF, FCAS uh, development programme. It basically funds it at least through mid-decade and more. So that's multi-billions of euros from the German side. The sticking point remains the standoff between uh, France and Germany, but specifically between uh, Dassault and Airbus over leadership and over the flight controls. And, you know, having had phase 1A, as it was called, of SCAF finished um, uh, earlier on this year, phase 1, or sorry, last year, phase 1B was going through, but this is very, very early stuff. They've got a signed phase 2, um, mid-year or, or thereabouts and then really uh, start accelerating the program. My feeling is that of three programs, NGAD, Tempest, SCAF, that's the order in which they're going to come out and it's quite possible there could be five years between each of those. Does uh, does the US acceleration focus mines uh, in, in Europe uh, at all or is this sort of seen as the United States is going to do what it does at its pace? And it it, it, it and I completely agree with you um, that there has not or does there's been no public outreach uh from from uh the u.s side on this which which suggests that it's going to be something far more along the lines uh of f-22 um you right i mean from an expediency standpoint 
you don't have to worry about transferability um, and and building in a lot of anti-tamper features, right? I mean, which was the biggest problem with the F-22. Does this focus uh, attention in Europe? No, I don't think it does. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you have a US-only aircraft, it's a US-only aircraft. European programs will go at their own pace, which on the one hand is, is dictated by politics and on the other is dictated by, you know, more or less by, by, by funding, depending on whether it's, it's SCAF or Tempest. I actually th think... As long as NGAD is a US-only program, it has no effect on how Europeans think about their programs. Uh, what does or what may do is an awareness of what the European uh, theatre might look like uh, over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And particularly, you know, if the US uh, either withdraws from NATO or just de-emphasizes de its European commitment over that period. And hence, Europeans have got to do the, the air superiority, if not the air dominance, roll themselves. And any other uh, last thoughts before I, I have Sash kind of give us the, the, the war update as he, as he sees it? One point I might add, Margo, is um, if you look at relative footprint out at Plant 42 in the Mojave, um, that's where uh, you know, the, the Lockheed Skunk Works is and uh, where Northrop does a lot of their, their work. And currently the, the Northrop production facility for their portion of F-35 is uh, and presumably uh, B-21, although that's classified. Um, the Northrop footprint out there has grown a ton over the last, uh, call it decade. Uh, and now they're the dominant footprint in Plant 42 uh, by a meaningful margin. Uh, I think they've got something on the order of maybe 6,000 employees out there where uh, Lockheed has maybe 2,000 and Boeing has maybe 200. Um, so just to add to you know the, the thoughts of who may be doing what, when you think about this potential complex system of NGAD, um, if footprint out and plant 42 has anything to do with it, it might be a fair bet that Northrop at least has a piece of it. Part of this is also uh, very important B-21 work uh, they're doing because the program is also uh, a priority and a lot of discussion about whether or not, uh, you know, that we're going to build clearly more than uh, hundred of those airplanes. Um, and, you know, Lockheed did uh, unveil its sort of flexible, um, manufacturing capability uh, that it was uh, talking about. Uh, folks were talking about interesting things in the company's future. And then very abruptly, the company stopped talking about all of it and <laughs> stopped, stopped giving tours. Uh, so that uh, that was interesting. Richard, uh, you had something and then we'll, we'll end it with Sash. Yeah, you know, just one comment uh, related to your thought about this being the time to strike while the iron is uh, is hot in terms of defense programs, that that's a problem. I mean, basically there's an echo here from the great days at the sort of towards the end of the Cold War when so many new programs were stood up back in the eighties uh, and then it all came crashing down when it came time to build them, which resulted of course in the catastrophe, the A-12, the implosion of the B-2, the you know ATF, F-22, all the other programs that were delayed or killed or truncated. And I can't help but wonder if we're not setting ourselves up. There are so many new expensive programs and it's all entering heavy non-recurring spending, but recurring is gonna be in the 2030s. And that's a very different environment. So right now you're exactly right, spending on NGAD, you know, 20 billion, 30 billion, whatever it takes to develop this thing. But then, you know, it could be a very different strategic environment of the 2030s and people are going to say, how much per aircraft? And by the way, we've just signed this wonderful peace deal with China and Russia while they've been clearly unmasked as nothing more than, you know, yet again, Bangladesh with a few nukes and we don't really care about them anymore. In other words, are we setting ourselves up for a massive period of bills we can't pay? 
uh, that concerns me. That uh, spending was coming as the Cold War was ending, right? And all of a sudden, we found we did not need a lot of the systems we needed. We didn't need a Seawolf-class submarine, for example. We didn't need the B-2, uh, certainly in the 132 run. Uh, or or the F-22 and the numbers we did. And then, you know, I mean, right? I mean, the F-35 was born as a full-to-gap fighter, right? I mean, that we're executing three decades on. Um, I, I think we're in a slightly different strategic situation, and it's not abundantly clear whether anybody who succeeds Xi or Putin um, is going to be, you know, peace deal inclined as, as much as we would like to believe that. But again, it, it, is, it is an interesting risk, uh, risk factor. Um, uh, Sash, uh, your sense on where we are in the war, European support, uh, systems that are being shipped, and and what it all means from your perspective, looking at uh, the eaches of all of this, right? Um, some concern that France, Italy, uh, Germany may be somewhat more accommodationist uh, toward uh, Putin, right? We can't back him into a corner. We can't humiliate him. Uh, the president even saying in the United States, you know, we, we seek no war with Russia. Uh, and anytime anybody gives Vladimir Putin an inch, he triples down and says, OK, you know, I'm going to punish each of you, begins lobbing missiles at Kiev, uh, blows up grain. Right. I mean, he, he, he the, 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 to me, this is all weakness uh, that only emboldens him to sort of ratchet it up and be like, OK, I am going to punish you guys for uh, sending uh, the rocket artillery. So we sent HIMARS, but we didn't send MLRS, for example, or ATACMS, uh, combat aviation. I mean, again, we're we're not doing the things I think we need to do because uh, Putin has to lose uh, in in Ukraine, from my perspective. But from your perspective, where are we? Um, are are these moves uh, positive? Ninety percent of oil—that's uh, great, but they did a carve out for Hungary. Uh, you, you know, Putin's stooge in in the EU. Uh, your your sense on sort of where we are now that we've crossed the hundredth day? Okay, I mean, look, there's a there's a huge number of things there, but I mean, first of all. Uh, what's being sent to Ukraine. I don't think that if the Ukrainians use them uh, as well as they've used every other piece of equipment that they've been sent so far, that uh, Russian artillerists will actually know the difference between being hit by a strike from HIMARS and a strike from MLRS. Um, it, yeah, it's only one pod per vehicle rather than two, but the MLRS rocket or rockets, depending on the, the precise mode, are as lethal uh, where they go from a, from a high Mars or from a, a, an M270, uh, the, the, the tracked MRS carrier. Um, in many respects, the you know high Mars is is rather more maneuverable uh, and much quicker in uh, in and out of uh, of action. I think you know the Ukrainians are likely to be able to uh, use those very very well indeed if they are supplied with sufficient rocket pods, uh, because once you start firing uh, MLRS of any sort, it is such. An efficient system in terms of its reloading uh, time uh, and in terms of its engagement process, uh, the logistics becomes as much of a backbreaker as it is with 155 millimeter uh, artillery. And those are the two the two worst uh, strains on any army's uh, logistics. But you know, that that was clearly the big news this week, and the reason why uh, I think uh, Putin is is in high threat mode at the moment when he's referring to Europe and the US is because he sees. Uh, MLRS rocket systems as being a uh, a potential game changer uh, against uh, Russian artillery and hence against the Russian ability to continue to press in the east. And actually, you know, militarily, the Russians have entered uh, Sviardonetsk, but I mean, it hasn't. They haven't yet com uh, completely taken it. I would say it's been a bit of a it's been a, a bloody, but effectively a, a bit of a stalemate uh, this week. 
then you have the tricky subject of European disunity or lack of. Um, and, you know, there's 30 odd nations in Europe. Um, it, it is very, very uncomfortable when three of the oldest members of the European Union and three of the economically biggest members of the European Union, Germany, France, Italy, are perceived to be less committed to um, a successful outcome to Ukraine than many of the younger slash smaller slash further north and east countries uh, in uh, Europe are. Um, there are different, slightly different reasons why they are. Italy has always had a, or sorry, not always, since the Second World War, has had a, um, a, a, you know, a bit of a bent towards Russia. It, you know, there, there have been uh, links in terms of industry, in terms of politics, uh, which go back much longer than for any other uh, country. Partly, this was a degree of Italian exceptionalism. Um, actually, I think Mario Draghi has done an incredibly good job of uh, trying to um, uh, dampen that entire strain down a bit. Um, France and Germany, um, there are clearly countries in Europe that are, feel very uncomfortable about French and, Ger French and German uh, leaders talking to Putin um, without necessarily having a mandate from the EU uh, or indeed from countries that are closer to the Ukraine and have a, a very, very big involvement. As for cutting off oil, um, you know, this has been one of the hardest things that the European Union has negotiated. I have, I have some sympathy for them. I think if, you know, if the UK or US had to undergo, you know, a reduction of 50, 60, 70% in the amount of oil that's coming into the country over a period of a couple of weeks or months or so, uh, that would be politically unbelievably difficult. And I'm not sure that our politicians could deliver that. Uh, I live, you know, such you with yours could, but, you know, Hungary is uh, much more dependent on Russian oil than many other countries. Um, Viktor Orban, the um, uh, Hungarian prime minister, is clearly a, a, a difficult person and he has historically been much more pro-Putin. But I think the, you know, the, the bare facts are it's very, very hard just to say, well, we're going to shut down uh, Hungary industrially because that's the necessary collateral damage for uh, for dealing with with Russia. Ultimately, you know, the EU works on, a, on the basis of consensus and agreement. And without that, um, and also, you know, he could quite easily then veto um, uh, Finland and Sweden coming into NATO. Uh, there are always multiple layers of politics going on. I think in general, Europe and the uh, Europe, the EU and NATO, because uh, they're very separate, have done a very, very good job of holding together. But this has not been a, uh, particularly the EU's finest week. And uh, Germany, Germany still hanging in there or not uh, from your uh, standpoint? Because, again, Olaf Scholz is in a very difficult position as well, right? I mean, his $100 billion uh, package is going to pass uh, the Bundestag, which I think is uh, terrific, uh, right? And, and um, so there are Germans who say, look, I mean, the criticism is just not fair. We're gearing up as quickly as we can, and we have been giving help. You get the same well, thing from French uh, as well, right? Um, ju just because we said don't humiliate Vladimir Putin doesn't mean that we we, we don't need to stand up to him. Um, well, there's two different issues, aren't there? I mean, there's uh, there's Germany spending 100 billion on its own defense, and there's Germany supporting Ukraine. The paradox at the moment is Germany is spending more more on its own defense, and heaven knows it needs it, than it is supporting Ukraine. Ukraine is, uh, you know, the flow of arms from Germany to Ukraine is very very slow uh, at the moment. There are 
you know, there may be good reasons for that, although some of the excuses seem to me to be pretty threadbare. Uh, but it's hard to escape the conclusion that the German wish not to humiliate Putin is making them much more cautious about what they supply to Ukraine, whereas they see very little risk politically in long-term defence spending programmes for, for Germany itself. I think that's a, it's quite difficult to square those two positions. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for being so generous with your time. It's an absolute pleasure uh, each week to have you on the program. Truly a highlight. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, especially uh, on your busy uh, weekends. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you all back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Uh, great to be here, Vargo. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vargo. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, Vargo. Thanks very much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.